the 19th century, the Christian story in Western civilization is on the precipice of breaking down. Over the centuries, the Christian narrative became convoluted. Kings and kingdoms used the message of the cross to make loyal, obedient servants who would sacrificially serve their rule and reign while they continued to amass great wealth and power. Those who could not agree on what the Christian story was even about often killed each other in an effort to establish narrative supremacy. Protestants versus Catholics, Reformers versus Anabaptists, those who supposedly serve the Lamb who was slain, now slaying each other. The scientific revolution, birthed out of Christian curiosity, commitment to the universality of truth and the theological affirmation that God intended to make himself discoverable in his creation, also contributed to its slow demise. The popular Christian narrative of the 19th century didn't know what to do with dinosaurs or Darwin. From antiquity past, divine activity was frequently cited as the explanatory cause of something by which no other discernible cause could be easily located. You start shrinking down what is unknown, and you start shrinking this god of the gaps down smaller and smaller. And so just as we saw in the last episode, a transition from ancient paganism to the Christianization of the Roman Empire, Nietzsche saw in 1880 what appeared to be the imminent death of God in Western civilization. Nietzsche wrote this, quote, what I relate is the history of the next two centuries. I describe what is coming, what is inevitable, the rise of nihilism. This tale can already be told, for necessity itself is at work here. This destiny speaks in a hundred different signs, announcing itself everywhere. For this music of the future, all ears are already pricked. The whole of our European culture has long been in an agony of suspense increasing with each passing decade as if in anticipation of disaster like a torrent relentlessly violently rushing to its end refusing to reflect afraid to reflect end quote to understand the looming end of secularism we need to understand the rise of secularism and how secularism didn't make a neutral godless religionless space instead it just gave us new gods. But I'm convinced that there's a growing sense of dissatisfaction with our new gods. People are beginning to see the inevitability of religion. And if we're paying attention to the cultural stories that have been emerging in the zeitgeist of popular culture, we can see that the gods of the secular frame are being called into question. My name is Paul Anleitner. Thanks for listening to today's episode. This is part two of God's Wizards, Witches, and the End of Secularity. If you haven't done so already, go back and listen to part one. That's in episode 96. Try to listen to that one first before you dive into the rest of today's episode. Deep Talks Exploring Theology and Meaning Making is made possible by listeners just like you who are supporting on Patreon. Thank you all for your support. Stay tuned at the end of today's episode to find out more. Just as paganism continued on in the Roman Empire for centuries, long after the final generation of elite pagans in the Roman Empire died off, 
Christianity has continued on in the West, especially here in America, long after the secular story slowly began to take up a more prominent narrative role in our cultural mythos. The old new god, if you would, who was, again, we talked about in episode one, there were the old gods of antiquity in the West, the old gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon. Those gods were displaced by a new god, a new god that we as Christians don't actually believe is new, but was a new story in history. Those old gods were displaced by the god of the Christian story. So as the secular story would have us believe, what the next iteration of this is, you know, for someone like Nietzsche, the next iteration wasn't going to be a replacement of the Christian God with a new God, but a replacement of the Christian God with a more fully realized human potential, um, the Superman, the Ubermensch, right? So the secular myth hasn't always been Nietzschean. The secular myth has been we do not replace the Christian God, once we've killed it off and displaced it. Uh, instead, what we need to have is a religionless vacuum. We, we, have, we, we want to have actually a godless, religionless space because the secular myth has told us that religion has produced all of the world's problems. Can't you see how backwards those people were in the Dark Ages, which is such a misnomer? right? Just look at the crusades, look at all those terrible things that happened, the superstitions, etc., etc. But this is a total, complete myth and fabrication. The secular story has never been true. We have never just replaced or killed off God and left an empty vacuum of religion. That's not what has happened. There are no godless spaces. We just swap out old religions for new ones. We traded old gods for new ones. And the question we really want to ask ourselves is, are the new gods automatically better just because they are new? And we'll talk about what some of these new gods are. I've talked about it quite a bit in this podcast, uh, the duration of these past three years of doing this podcast that we have substitute religions that come in and fill the vacuum of traditional religious spaces. It's very common among people who move into a secular frame to adopt all sorts of other substitute religious practices. You can even go all the way back to a conversation I had way back in year one with um, Dr. Clay Rutledge. Uh, he is a... Um, behavioral scientist, and he's been really fascinated with studying the psychology of meaning, and he's been able to demonstrably prove that people who move away from traditional religions don't move away from religious belief at all. Of course, we've also spent a lot of, bit, a lot of time um, with the work of people like Charles Taylor, James K.A. Smith over the past three years, who've, who've been able to also demonstrate that we have substitute liturgies, we have substitute religious practices that simply end up filling the void. And again, we'll talk more about those in a little bit. But we just simply trade new old gods for new gods. We never displace the, the, the role of religion entirely. And though I talked about in the previous episode in the series about how we can start to see evidence of this in the cultural stories that are... Um, popular in our popular cultural level, 
that we can see things like we talked about in um, part one of this series, how you could see evidence of this in Zack Snyder's Justice League, this sense at which uh, we never have just a vacuum of religionless power, that something always steps in to fill the gap. That's part of one of the meta themes, uh, the mythic themes of Zack Snyder's Justice League. Uh, we see these sorts, uh, the evidence of this emerging out of the cultural consciousness in our cultural artifacts, in our cultural stories. And we can go back decades to start seeing evidence of this stuff. I want to go back to actually a great example of this. We're staying in that sort of mythic superhero world, as I think that is really for our cultural stories, the myths of DC superheroes, Marvel superheroes, certainly other cultural stories like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter. There's a, there's a bunch of really influential mythic works that are unique to our culture. We can see evidence in those stories of these emerging dissatisfactions, this emerging sense of dissatisfaction with the secular story, an increasing awareness that we have not killed off religion, we have not killed off gods and magic, we have only replaced the old ones with new ones. And there's a great example of this. We can go actually all the way back to 1996 and a graphic novel that I don't think ever really quite hit the level of like cultural zeitgeist on the same way like a Marvel movie would or a Star Wars movie or something like that would. But it's been a really influential graphic novel that has played a uh, deeply influential role in some of the stuff that has emerged in the larger, you know, pop level zeitgeist stuff. The things like a Zack Snyder's Justice League. Uh, and it's a 1996 graphic novel entitled Kingdom Come. It was written by Mark Wade and renowned comic book graphic novel artist Alex Ross did all the artwork for it. This is a really, really fascinating story. So again, written in 1996, it's a deeply influential and important story in the comic book mythos, uh, even if you're unfamiliar with it. Uh, again, that's admittedly a subcultural thing. It's not something that hit the zeitgeist, though this work has influenced a bunch of other stuff, including the stuff Zack Snyder did, um, you know, the really popular Injustice video games that are set. Um, things that did get into the wider, uh, more recent cultural zeitgeist. This is a story that is set 20 years in the future. So it was written in 96, set 20 years in the future, which that puts us roughly about, you know, 2016. They don't explicitly state it as 2016. Um, but Mark Wade and Alex Ross both said, you know, this is about 20 years in the future. And what's happened in this future is the old superheroes of the past, they're either dead or retired. And what's ended up happening is a new, far less virtuous group of superheroes have taken their place. In fact, there's not really even supervillains in this world anymore. There's just degrees of less virtuous superheroes that fill up the um, the, the pantheon of, of superhero gods. The story begins by introducing the protagonist of the story. It's a, a pastor, actually, a pastor named Norman McKay. 
whose at least visual representation was based on Alex Ross's dad, even though Alex Ross, his father, was not a pastor. So it follows the story of a pastor. And the story begins with this pastor counseling an old and decrepit man named Wesley Dodds. Now, Dodds, in his youth, was a superhero known as the Sandman. And now he's kind of, he's on his deathbed. And and the pastor, Pastor McKay, Norman McKay, is kind of doing his pastoral duties, attending to this man on his deathbed at his bedside. And um, Dodds begins to read to Pastor McKay from the book of Revelation and tells him that he's been seeing visions, visions that would reveal to him that what is written in the book of Revelation is about to unfold. Dodd dies right after this, and as uh, Pastor Norman McKay is walking home from the funeral, there are these new, less virtuous superheroes, you might might maybe even just call them anti-heroes, and, and they're fighting each other in the streets with no concern for innocent people harmed, innocent people killed in their way. They're fighting over all sorts, uh, you know, presumably over status. We don't even know what they are fighting about. It's just that they don't have the same virtues as the old gods, in particular, the old god Superman. So as McKay is seeing this unfold on the streets around him as he's walking, home from the funeral of Wesley Dodd, a.k.a. the Sandman. McKay laments to himself, this is, um, this is something ripped straight from the pages of that graphic novel, quote, According to the word of God, the meek would someday inherit the earth. Someday. And then you can actually see in the panels, his eyes, they lift, uh, they shift over, and, and he sees these vain and, and violent new gods, these new heroes, they're destroying everything around them. And then McKay says at the end, he says, quote, but God never accounted for the might, end quote. So he's really discouraged by this. He's an older pastor. Presumably, they never give his age, but by his appearance, he looks to be in his late 60s. And he sees what's happening in the world around him. He's feeling distraught. He's lamenting. Um, what about this meek inheriting the world stuff? And he looks around and he sees these new gods and what they're doing uh, to the world around him. And he, he, begins to, he begins to doubt whether or not the God he believes in, the God that he preaches about week in and week out, is just, whether he actually acts in the world. So then the scene moves. It's really interesting. He moves. The very next scene jumps ahead to Norman McKay. And he's preaching from the pulpit. He's preaching to his aging congregation. And while he's preaching, it's as if this, this sudden urge takes over. You know, it's like an uncontrolled, unconscious thought, like just took over his mouth as he's preaching. And all of a sudden, he finds himself warning his congregation, a very old, aging congregation. The, the pews are relatively empty. You know, I mean, this is like you know, stuff that, you know, church attendance has been in decline for quite some time. But even that, even that fact and feature, looking ahead, you know, 20 years from 1996 to see, a, you know, an aging church that's empty or it's even in of itself that's prophetic. So he's preaching to his aging congregation. All of a sudden, these words just start coming out of his mouth. Uh, he's warning them of impending judgment using 
book uh, language from the book of Revelation. It's a fire and brimstone kind of sermon, and his congregation is in shock and disgust. See, they came to church that Sunday morning looking for comfort after seeing the horrible events of these new gods fighting in the streets. In fact, there's been a terrible catastrophe that's actually, you know, unleashed a, a nuke, nuclear level disaster in the state of Kansas. So things in the world are a mess, and it seems quite apparent that Pastor McKay's congregation, they're not looking to come in that morning and hear about fire and brimstone sermons. They didn't want to hear that, you know. Um, and now McKay has become distraught. He's a man, again, in his late 60s, aging congregation, and now all of a sudden he finds himself starting to have the same kinds of visions that Wesley Dodd did, and he starts to worry. Am I losing my mind? He's sitting in an empty pew after the congregation leaves the church already. He's seated in this pew. You can, you know, there's, you know, you can see even by uh, the artistic portrayal, he's, he's distraught. What, what has come out of me? Am I losing it? You know, <laughs> why is this just emerged in my thoughts? Then, then he looks up to a stained glass image of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And emerging out of the stained glass comes a haunting hooded figure known as the Spectre. In DC Comics, the Spectre is a, is a cosmic being, and he is a like visible manifestation. He is intended to be an agent of God's judgment in the world. So he's supposed to act in some sense as like an impartial arbiter of justice in the world. Yes, is he a superhero? Well, in some sense, but, you know, there's a difference between kind of like your superheroes and then these cosmic beings in both um, DC and Marvel Comics. Spectre is a cosmic agent acting as the mechanism, vehicle, the agent of God's judgment in the world. What ends up happening next is really interesting. It kind of goes into sort of a, a Charles Dickens Christmas Carol direction. And the specter leads Pastor Norman to all these various places in the world where the foreboding, foreboding events that uh, seem like they're going to lead to Armageddon are going to take place. And the very first stop that they take is to see Superman. Now, Superman at this point is aged. Uh, and he has been on a self-imposed exile ever since he came to the conclusion that the world no longer wanted his brand of superhero. When he came to the conclusion that the world was moving in a direction that no longer seemed like it wanted him, he felt like an old god. Um, he put himself in self-imposed exile. So if we can see this, maybe... Just pause for a moment to, to take apart some of these details. We can see, if we can see Superman as a symbolic, archetypal Christ-like figure, which, you know, in the Zack Snyder films, he's definitely intended to be. Um, he certainly is an archetypal figure, the embodiment of what's supposed to be like our highest virtues. And there's a certainly, certainly a degree uh, of which 
Superman's virtues are compatible with what we would say would be the virtues of Christ. The very least we could say he's an archetypal Christ-like figure. He's an embodiment of moral virtue in our own cultural mythology. As we can see Superman like that, we can begin to understand a bit of what makes this story written, again, all the way back in 1996, telling a story about a world set approximately in 2016 as really profound and prophetic. Should we automatically assume that just because Christ displaced the morally flawed pagan gods and brought about an improved vision of God, that displacing the Christian God from our culture will bring us a better world? This is a really good question we are provoked to think about as one reads this Kingdom Come graphic novel. Superman's gone, and something worse has filled the void. This is a reoccurring thread in some of these stories, and this is what I'm trying, trying to highlight. It's not, just a, it's not just a Superman or a DC comic story we will talk in future episodes, and even in this podcast about some other cultural artifacts, cultural stories that show us similar things. The, this is not a situation where Superman goes, and because he was antiquated, a more superior brand of hero, a new god arrives that's better. That's not the case. Absolutely not. In Superman's spot, which really serves as a, a spot atop the hierarchy of gods, a new god does replace him. There isn't just a vacuum of godless space in the world. And in this particular story, the, the new god on the top of the pantheon and the, on top of the hierarchy of gods is a character called Magog. Now, any of you that <laughs> grew up with a lot of dispensationalist eschatology and left-behind books and crazy end-times movies, you're probably familiar with the name Magog. There's obvious apocalyptic connections that are intended in his name. Magog's an interesting character in the story. Magog is a new god... He's a, you know, and they're really explicit in calling these heroes, uh, not just heroes, but, but gods. I mean, there's a really intentional connection being made by the author in this story. Magog, what's his deal? Magog saw that Superman's virtues were antiquated and ineffective. And this became evident when in this story, they kind of flash back to an incident uh, where the Joker went to Metropolis and killed Lois Lane and dozens of other people in Metropolis. And then Superman, who, you know, his, the love of his life has been killed, refuses to kill Joker right then and there. When Magog saw that, he decided if Superman can't do this, if Superman's going to hold to these antiquated moral principles about what what is just and not acting as judge jury and executioner and even giving someone like the joker a fair trial magog decided you know what i'm gonna do the job instead so as police are bringing the clown prince of crime into custody magog just kills him right there on the spot and superman's upset by this which is in some sense weird right obviously superman was upset by joker killing the love of his life. I can't remember if they're married in this story or not. But he's also upset by Magog killing his enemy. 
killing the wicked. He, he's, he's upset by this. And instead, what he decides is that Magog shouldn't do this. He's upset by this. And he, he, he brings Magog into custody himself. He thinks this sort of reckless ban, you know, brand of justice is not justice, that this isn't virtue. So he does this. He, uh, they have a trial for Magog, and the judge actually rules in favor of Magog, rules that Magog's killing of Joker was justified. When Superman sees this, he, this is the point in which he realizes that he's living in a post-Superman world, a world that doesn't want his virtues, his sense of right and wrong and what's just. What ends up happening is Superman goes into exile. Magog sits atop the sort of hierarchy of new gods. He still is supposed to be a superhero, but his reckless brand of justice ends up killing millions of people while Superman was in exile. Eventually, what ends up happening in the story, and I'm explaining much more to you than when we talk about movies and other things, because I don't know how many of you would be familiar with this story. Now, eventually in the story, Superman returns. He leaves exile. He sees what the new gods are doing and unleashing on the world. And he, ref- he comes back to confront these new gods. But what he ends up finding is that his absence not only brought out these new gods, but that his absence also negatively affected some of what we could call the, the older, lesser gods. You know, uh, the, the ones that, like Wonder Woman and, and Batman, who were you know, inspired and, and perhaps even looked to Superman as, as, as a moral guide and as a moral compass in some way, shape, or form. And in this story, when Superman leaves the scene and puts himself into exile, even characters like Wonder Woman and Batwoman uh, begin to succumb to their own weaknesses, temptations, their vices. Wonder Woman becomes far more brutal. Um, Batman you know, runs Gotham City under, like just 1984 levels of, of, of surveillance makes it a total police state. They, they haven't gone all the way to Magog side. You know, they haven't gone to that extreme. But the absence of Superman and the absence of his moral exemplar in the world, it, it even affects, it negatively affects those that were once looked at as heroes in the world. Uh, even the young, this is a really crucial part of the story, the young Billy Batson. Young Billy Batson is a character in DC Comics that used to be known as Captain Marvel. He is the boy that says Shazam, and on that magic word, he turns into, again, what was once Captain Marvel before the DC Marvel Comics dispute. He turns into Shazam, a Superman-like hero with so many of Superman's powers, but he also has magic as well. He's a magic-powered superhero. So even the young Billy Batson, after Superman goes into exile, becomes corrupted and brainwashed by Lex Luthor. The story ends this way. I'm spending a lot of time with it because, again, I, I don't know how many of you are familiar with it, but I think it's a really helpful story. And the story ends with a final battle between Superman and the new gods. And this this battle is intense, and it threatens to destroy the world. The UN sees all of these gods as a threat, 
And what they decide to do is just unleash multiple nuclear weapons on all of the gods and battle all of them, both old and new. Wonder Woman, Batman are there, you know, others like Green Lantern have kind of emerged out of hiding. They are there battling the new gods. And the UN decides we're just going to nuke them all, right? <laughs> so this final struggle, um, there is the corrupted Shazam, Billy Batson, and Superman going to toe-to-toe. -to -toe. And Superman was Billy Batson's idol. He looked up to him as a kid, as the hero he wanted to be. And now they're going toe-to-toe -to -toe in climactic confrontation. The nuclear missiles are approaching the battle. There's obviously going to be massive civilian casualties, not one, but I think two or three nukes. I mean, just massive nuclear warheads are being sent to just kill them all. And Superman decides as he becomes aware that these are coming to do what always makes Superman the most virtuous character. He decides he's going to take on the full blast of these nuclear missiles. He's going to sacrifice himself to save all, and he makes no distinction between those who deserve it and those who don't deserve it. Why do we look at that and go, that is a virtuous action? When we see that in the story, why does that compel us to feel as if this character is doing something good? Because it doesn't, in some sense, in some pragmatic sense, it doesn't make sense for Superman to do this, this is, you know, well, this self-sacrifice, couldn't you do more good if you did this? Maybe if you brought more order and stability. These are the sorts of pragmatic questions that we might have, but we see something in Superman and it compels us to go, this is virtuous. And that's because the self-sacrificial actions and the self-sacrificial impulse of Superman is in keeping with the Christian story and the Christian God revealed in Jesus, who lays down his life for others. So that deeply resonates with us. So Superman's going to do that. But before he does, he covers up Billy Batson's mouth before he can yell Shazam again. So, you know, Shazam, as he yells Shazam, this big bolt of lightning hits him, transforms him into, into Shazam, and, you know, can also do damage to anybody that's around him. In this battle, he keeps yelling Shazam over and over just to, just to blast Superman with this, you know, magic thunder, right? So before he's about to do this again to Superman, Superman covers his mouth just before Superman intends to go up and to take on the full blast of these nuclear missiles up into space, right? Before he does that, he covers up Batson's mouth before he can yell Shazam again. And with his eyes like fixed on Billy's eyes, he reminds Billy of who he truly is and what he's been called to do. Billy, again, was brainwashed by Luthor. And Superman looks into his eyes. This is, again, what makes Superman an archetypal Christ-like figure. Where he reminds Billy of who he is, what he's been called to do. He tells him, hey, look around at all of these supposed heroes killing each other and whose actions now threaten the millions of civilians who are going to die as casualties because of this nuclear destruction. Look at all of this. Remember who you are. And then Superman flies off on his way to take on the full brunt of this nuclear attack. But underneath him, he hears Billy cry out, Shazam, and then transforms into Shazam. Obviously, you're thinking at this point, oh, gosh, the message didn't get through. And here comes Shazam to keep, his, keep going on his fight with Superman. And whatever happens, happens. You know, maybe that's, maybe that's what's going to happen. 
But as he transforms into Shazam and flies up into the sky, he grabs on Superman's leg, not to hurt him or kill him, but to throw Superman to the ground so that he could take on the full weight of these missiles and sacrifice himself for others. The warheads, the blast from the warheads, they kill Shazam. They kill a whole bunch of the other new gods. There are some civilian casualties, but a far worse crisis was averted because Billy looked to the moral exemplar of Superman. Something he saw in Superman reminded him of what he had been called to do, and he stepped into that calling. And because of that, a far worse crisis was averted. In the aftermath of all this, the new gods who didn't die in the conflict, they end up giving themselves, in a sense, over to the benevolent leadership, the lordship of Superman. They, they begin to embody his virtuous ideals. Now, it's not like a utopian happy ending. Of course, Batman is the one to quickly remind everyone that, you know, the same old problems in the world still do exist. But there is actually a return that happens, a return to something that had been lost in Superman's absence. There's a return to something that had been lost in when the new God stepped in to the vacuum. There was a now in the wake of Superman's actions and the wake of Shazam's realization, the Shazam modeling the pattern of Christ-like virtue that we see in Superman as a character, there is now a clearer vision of what the highest good, the highest good that should subordinate all other aims. That vision is made clear in the hero of Superman. Even those new gods have reformed their behaviors. They've reformed to find harmony in keeping with the virtues of Superman. Now, I'm not trying to suggest in telling you this story and taking all this time for the story to tell you that the authors of the story had intentionally and explicitly sought to deal with the rise of secularity in the wake of the death of God or to definitively offer some prophetic forecast on the conflicts that would arise between, you know, the vain newer gods who fill the vacuum of secularity. But when stuff like this, when stuff is brewing in the collective conscience of a culture, and there is a sense of collective consciousness that a culture shares in its cultural artifacts, in its language, in its stories that it tells, in the media of communication, when we see that stuff brewing, these ideas, these drives, these appetites, these impulses, they have a way of emerging in the communicative and uh, the communicative actions of individuals in that culture, even if they're not like explicitly going, hey, my goal in this story is to tell you about my concerns about what happens in the death of God and what happens when new gods rise to fill the vacuum of power in secularity. That might not be their explicit intention, but it still emerges. It's actually similar to the illustration that they actually use in this story. Just as Norman McKay, Pastor Norman McKay, found these sorts of pronouncements of judgment just kind of emerging from his mouth in the sermon towards the beginning of the story, we have these clues about what is happening in the collective culture that just come bubbling up in our cultural stories, whether or not those who tell the stories are fully aware what is emerging 
out of them. Even by the 1990s, in stories like Kingdom Come, which, again, were popular in the world of comic mythology, but they hadn't really reached popular zeitgeist level, there's plenty of evidence that people were already beginning to see that the death of God does not create neutral, secular spaces. New gods emerge, and maybe we don't actually like these new gods any better than the old. Here in America, as in much of the Western world, we've had many new gods fighting to fill the vacuum of power. One god has been politics and the state. Now, from the very beginning of our nation's history, there's been this syncretic civil religion that blends elements of the Christian story with stories and symbols of nationalism, stories and symbols of cultural supremacy. This has vied for power with the genuine Christian story from the very beginning of our nation's history. So much of what people think is the Christian story is actually civil religion in disguise. That is nothing new. But there certainly has been, in the vacuum of power and secularity, a increased allegiance to political tribes and to the state. Another new god that's occupied more territory in the supposedly secular vacuum has been Mammon, a god that's actually not really that new. Mammon was the old ancient god of greed, and there's plenty of rebranded and repackaged Mammon happening in our cultural moment. Cultural artifacts and cultural stories like the 1999 film Fight Club exposed the growing cultural disillusionment with Mammon. Interestingly enough, Fight Club was a book before it was turned into one of the most popular movies of the end of the second millennium, a book that was actually released in the same year as the graphic novel Kingdom Come, 1996. So obviously, there's something happening in the 90s. The, the, the disillusionment, <laughs> there was already at that point a, a disintegration of belief in the secular story. If you haven't seen Fight Club, I, you know, I'm not necessarily like endorsing it. Um, there's certainly some, it's a pretty dark story. Um, and so again, like, you, you know, viewer discretion is advised. Fight Club follows an unnamed protagonist who's completely disillusioned by the meaninglessness of his white-collar job, a job that he's given his life to in order to simply accumulate nice furniture in his apartment. In an attempt to find meaning in his life, the protagonist starts a fight club that eventually leads to a formation of an anti-materialist, anti-corporate gang of men in meaning crisis. This gang begins to participate in ever-worsening acts of vandalism, and these acts of vandalism eventually lead to full-blown acts of terrorism. Fight Club was a pretty dark, pretty dark movie, but it made it abundantly clear that Mammon didn't seem like a better god to give your life to. Unlike the Kingdom Come graphic novel, which remained relatively obscure in pop culture, Fight Club definitely hit 
the cultural zeitgeist level among Gen Xers and older millennials. This certainly wasn't the first time, though, dissatisfaction with the new gods of secularity emerged in cultural consciousness. We could go back to the rise of the New Age movement in the 1960s, which is now enjoying a revitalization today. The New Age movement showed the cracks in the idols of nationalistic civil religion and the spirit of mammon. Both civil religion and mammon function as gods that want its victims to only believe in the imminent, to only see what is immediately in front of them in the short term. One of the nasty side effects of worshiping mammon is that mammon entraps people in cycles of consumerism. These cycles of consumerism are bolstered by the materialist story, and I, I mean that in both senses of the term materialist, both metaphysical materialism and, and greedy mammon-worshipping materialism. The cycles of consumerism are bolstered by that story, both of them, <laughs> but they're bolstered by the metaphysical materialist story. The constant consumption of greed functions as the only gateway to a simulated sense of transcendence in a materialist frame. You get that dopamine hit on your next purchase, the next thing that you've consumed, and we mistake that kind of dopamine hit with a sense of awe and wonder and transcendence, a positively transforming experience. What the New Age movement did, though, and the countercultural movement of the 60s, it did awaken people to the possibility of transcendence. It was largely a movement of younger people who were disillusioned by the, uh, what they perceived to be was the greed of the American empire, the, the um, meaninglessness of their time and age, the meaninglessness of the imminent frame. And so they were seeking transcendence, transcendence in alternative forms of spirituality, transcendence in psychedelics, right? Psychedelics obviously played a significant role in th this movement um, as these altered states of consciousness, if nothing else, produced a sense that there is more than the imminent frame. That's not an endorsement of it, I want to be clear, but one thing's for certain, very few people who take LSD or psilocybin end up returning from those sorts of experiences going, yeah, I think, you know, I think all that there is in life is to, you know, make money, accumulate possessions, and die. You don't hear that from people. <laughs> it has a profound transformative impact. It haunts them with a sense of transcendence. All of this ended up being a doorway for the Jesus People movement. The Jesus People Movement and the Charismatic Renewal of the 1970s. Now, this, this was a really significant period in uh, church history in modern America. Of course, so much of the Charismatic Renewal Movement, the Jesus People Movement, ended up moving into what we would say are more historically Protestant denominations. If you have at your church a band that looks like a pop band or a rock band, you can thank the Jesus People Movement and the Charismatic Renewal, because that wasn't happening in churches in America or pretty much anywhere uh, in the Western world at that time. Guitars, drums, you know, all of this stuff, whether you like it or not, doesn't happen without that. 
Why did that stuff happen? Well, it's because of the Jesus People Movement. You get a bunch of hippies coming and they're actually starting to know Christ, whether that's some of which just because they had a profound spiritual experience that made them open, that's possible. There were certainly those that were kind of evangelists to hippies. Um, Certainly people in that movement are probably people that score higher in openness, higher to the possibility of transcendence. So there was this massive influx. Look at, I think it's Time Magazine's front cover in, I want to say it's 1971, 1972 or 1973, somewhere in there, had um, a picture, you know, a psychedelic-looking picture of uh, Jesus' face on the cover, and it was highlighting the Jesus People movement. And the Jesus People movement was also deeply charismatic. There was a charismatic renewal movement happening, really started in the 60s, not just in the Catholic Church, and into the 70s in Lutheran denominations, but it, it, it spread to every facet of Christian culture, whether you're evangelical or not evangelical. And that movement awakened many Christian denominations who had been functionally living in the imminent frame to the transcendent reality of the Holy Spirit, and that, this whole, that the Holy Spirit, the transcendent experience of God, was imminently available. It did break down the illusion of the imminent frame, just as it did, boy, 70 years ago in Azusa Street with the birth of Pentecostalism. Those gods of civil, nationalistic religions, politics, and greed, they didn't die easily, though. And it, I would have to contend, as much as I believe that there were so many good things that happened in the Jesus People Movement, charismatic renewal movement, those old gods, I should say the new gods of secularity, they didn't go down without a fight. There were, I think there were real moments of reenchantment and renewal that took place, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, even into the 90s, where I still think the 90s, 1990s, we saw an even you know, more complete um, manifestation of the charismatic renewal in the larger evangelical church culture in America. And I think there was some real renewal, real re-enchantment that happened. But, you know, just like in the days of Israel, in the days of Solomon, you know, Solomon felt the pull to worship idols. How many times did Israel feel the pull to worship idols? Did that mean that their prior experiences with God weren't valid? No. But that just seems to be, as you know, we sing in the hymns sometimes, there's a propensity to wander. The secular age idols eventually crept into even those, what I think were largely, you know, positive movements of reenchantment and renewal. And the old idols of even Gnosticism bled in, they crept in to the charismatic renewal. And they led many baby boomers, older Gen Xers astray. So even to this day, there are ardent charismatics who are deeply Gnostic and they are deeply nationalistic. We've seen it emerge from some of the bigger, more prominent epicenters of charismatic culture in the U.S. And it's disheartening, but it shouldn't be a surprise. The gods, the battle of the gods, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, the way it seems that God works in the world isn't just by overpowering, <laughs> you know, that, that doesn't seem to be the way of Jesus. Um, he seems to be the, the kind of 
the kind of God that if you ask him, can I have all my inheritance now so I can spend it and blow it on prostitutes and hookers and end up gambling it all away and end up in a pig pen, that he'll go and be like, sure, go for it. Why? That's the wisdom of God, and it seems foolish at times to us, but how these movements get led astray, I don't know. The, the father seems to let the prodigals go, and the father also welcomes them back home. The sad result, though, of all of this, of the genuine move, the, the authentic reenchantment, the movements of renewal being led astray by the new gods of secularity and even the old gods of mammon and Gnostic, Gnostic thought, the, the sad reality is the result of that has been the mass disenfranchisement of millennials and Gen Z from traditional Christian institutions. But what have the ex-vangelicals and new nuns, N-O-N-E-S, what have they found outside of Christian community and the flawed Christian stories they've received? Some in my generation of older millennials, there's this new term floating around, geriatric millennial. That's a fun one. <laughs> I guess I'm a, I am a geriatric millennial. Some in my generation fell headlong into the secular myth of a purely material world that is somehow simultaneously random and chaotic and yet somehow knowable through rationality. You know, that's the, the, the worldview of the new atheists, the mid-2000s new atheists in their heyday uh, that were championing, championing the secular myth. People like Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Christopher Hitchens, and Sam Harris. The, uh, they were dubbed the Four Horsemen of new atheism, right? And that, that's the narrative that they told. Well, you know, we can only know the universe through rationality. And yet, by the way, what we've come to discover is that <laughs> reality is completely random, chaotic. It has no teleological goal. It has no purpose to it. How do these things go together? Eventually, I know, you know, there, there were plenty of people that fell into that story in the mid-2000s that were my age, and then by, you know, the mid-20-teens, if that's what we're calling them, 2015, 2014, 2015, 2016, somewhere around there, that thing started to collapse on them when they figured out that it was an insufficient structure to support meaning or purpose or significance. And it's with that kind of crowd that the Joe Rogan phenomenon, the Jordan Peterson phenomenon, and even kind of the, the, the second act of Sam Harris's career uh, really found it, its niche. It, this, was the, this was the group, you know, jobless, oftentimes jobless or doing careers, work that people found no meaning or significance in. But sometimes a lot of particularly young men that just never worked, you know, didn't get a job. Um, they were attached to their television screens, you know, video games is the only way of simulated transcendence, uh, struggling with motivation. You know, again, they're only finding transcendence through these flow state inducing machines, as, as John Verveke likes to call it, video games. 
that's the only thing that seems to take them away from the despair of reality, or maybe it's alcohol, or maybe it's some other thing. The, these are the symptoms of the meaning crisis. Of course, though, the worst of these symptoms would, would be suicide, and we've seen a significant uptick in suicide over the last few years because I think this story is, is collapsing. Now, others, though, others afraid of the cold, empty universe of materialism, instead of falling into total despair and into the meaning crisis, at least uh, to all of the symptoms of the meaning crisis that we typically associate with it, others tried to synthesize their own spiritual cocktail of self-help books, even old pagan practices like astrology. And yet, there were still some in my generation that just said, hey, you know what? We're just going to double down on the civil, the civic religion stuff or Gnostic forms of charismaticism, of charismatic theology and practice. I've seen all of these different responses with people in my generation who saw what happened in the church uh, in the 80s and 90s as the boomers and Gen Xers maybe gave themselves away to those other secular age idols, the results of which for millennials and now for Gen Zs, Gen Zers have not been positive. These are just some of the reasons why I believe in this, my generation and younger, we are starting to see the trajectory of the West heading into a post-secular era a post-secular era where people are becoming aware of their deep need for transcendence and becoming more aware that the, this idea of a world without gods or religion is an absolute fantasy. There is no religionless world. Religion seems to be an innate part of the human experience. Whether you want to go to traditional religious structures like Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, whether it's people exp exploring those and, and living in those stories, or these more recent secular substitute religions, the new gods. Their, religion is an inescapable feature of human life. And I believe more people in my generation and younger are starting to see this. And yes, it isn't just those two generations. It certainly is Gen Xers, boomers as well, some in the generation older than the boomers, the, the silent years sometimes is what that generation is called between the boomers and uh, the greatest generation, quote unquote. There are people that are starting to see this, but I think it's a movement that's particularly happening among those in my generation and younger, I think. That will be, I think this is, the Gen Z will be the last generation to have people buy into the secular myth. Just consider, you can even see this with somebody who, like a Sam Harris, who of course is a boomer, right? Uh, Sam Harris, as an atheist, has had this second act to his career. Of course, he was in that initial new atheist movement in the mid-2000s, along with Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett. But He's gone in a much different direction. Um, notice even in the second phase of Sam Harris's career, how he has promoted practices like meditation. I believe him and his wife have even developed like an app, a meditation app. Um, why is he doing this? Because he realizes 
that the framework of that materialist story is devoid of transcendent experiences, and he sees that as a problem. So how can we, at least at the very least, simulate transcendence? Well, let's develop practices and cultivate practices like meditation. I even just heard him in an interview recently, you know, and I think when Sam Harris was younger, and some of you that, you know, you can certainly correct me on this, but as, my, as I recall, when Sam Harris was younger, you know, I, I don't think he was as open to the possibility of consciousness uh, not being reducible to just purely material, me- mechanical functions like he is now. I just heard an interview with him recently where, you know, he was really expressing, you know, questions about whether or not consciousness is simply reducible to material processes. Once you start going down that route, you're, you're now in the, the sort of the, the gateway drug into being open to transcendence, to open to there being a beyond the imminent frame, a beyond the material. And I'm not saying he's there yet, but he's definitely shifted um, the, the promotion of practices like meditation, mindfulness. Yes, that still functions. You can still be a materialist and practice those things, a, re, uh, a reductive materialist and practice those things. But you can see in someone like a Sam Harris a yearning for transcendence and a more openness in conversation to those who are exploring transcendence in various forms, whether that is a Jordan Peterson, right? So it's a really interesting, really interesting change. Uh, You can see it over the course of Sam Harris's career. And then Sam Harris ended up being kind of a gateway drug for a lot of people that were kind of on the tail end of that new atheist movement, the, the, the peak of the secular myth. And he ended up functioning as a gateway drug into people like Jordan Peterson, right? Uh, and then, of course, Peterson ends up being a gateway drug to others like John Verveke, who, of course, you know, I had John on uh, several months ago. And in John's story, you can hear it in that conversation. You know, John left Christian community and um, elements of the Christian story, but he's also not satisfied with uh, reductive materialism. And he's really deeply suspicious of the substitute gods of civil religion, greed, culture war. So it's a really interesting development. And I think we're really seeing the, the tail end of this secular myth being believed on mass scale. Now, rising in parallel with these movements has been movements what we could just all kind of lump together as deconstructionist philosophies, philosophies and ideologies that are fundamentally deconstructive. That doesn't make them bad. I want to be clear on this. Um, I think ultimately there are particular functions and roles that some ideas play that those ideas and their primary goal is to go in and to be the sledgehammer in a demolition of bad ideologies, or at least to cause people to look in their blind spots. And so I don't want to use this term as something that makes it a boogeyman. But, um, you know, I'm also not wild about some of these ideologies. There have been rising in parallel. So you've got kind of the Sam Harris, Joe Rogan, let's get into psychedelics, Jordan Peterson, let's like, let's be open to 
transcendence, that you got John Verveke. Let's not reduce all of the world into purely material processes. There's something else here. Let's have a very civil and respectful attitude towards religion. There could be things that we could learn. We have rising with those, these deconstructionist philosophies in Western civilization, like Marxism, postmodernism, for example. And again, I'm not trying to just lump those terms together. Marxism and postmodernism are not the same thing. I'm not pulling a Jordan Peterson move. If you, if you listen to a lot of Jordan Peterson, where he just kind of makes those two things synonymous, I am putting them together because Marxism, postmodernism, they are fundamentally a deconstructive force. You could probably say the same for critical theory and critical race theory is that those Movements are deconstructive. They are primarily about questioning established orders in Western thought and in Western civilization. They are critiques of structures, uh, especially Marxism and postmodernism. You could also say the same, I think, if you want, for critical theory and critical race theory, that they are more critiques of structures, not necessarily structures that can stand on their own and function. Uh, I don't think Marxism can produce uh, anything in and of itself. It has to actually lead to something else, for example, like communism. So Marxism is a critique. Postmodernism is a critique. They can't stand and build a structure on their, their own. The appeal of the new gods of deconstruction are that in the short term, they appear to offer people a path towards having a life of purpose and significance via tearing down what proponents of those ideologies claim to be as the unjust institutions and cultural structures of the past. As you are an activist, as you work to tear down what is perceived to be as unjust structures, unjust cultural structures, unjust institutions, you are at least giving someone a vehicle that, or a narrative, I should say even, a narrative structure for their life to find a sense of meaning and significance and purpose. Now, the question is whether or not that will be a sufficient enough structure for people. What happens when you have torn down so much that now you end up undercutting the very institutions, the cultural structures? that you depend on for your daily life. That will be the interesting thing to see in the next few years. Certainly, I think even to a certain degree here in Minneapolis, we are experiencing it. The critiques of law enforcement, plenty of valid critiques, but there are certainly those who find only purpose and meaning in life in deconstructing and tearing down of structures. And we're kind of getting to a point here in our own city where. Um, it feels much less safe. So what happens if you undercut all of these structures and what you're left with is something far worse? That is one of the problems with making deconstruction the narrative that you find your entire story, your guiding story in. There's, there's problems with it because you, you can only take a sledgehammer to so much. While those ideological sledgehammers are out, secularity and the very tenets of Enlightenment thought are being hammered at. 
And I know for a lot of people, that's really, really concerning. We have to be really careful, though, as a follower of Jesus, to not dismiss all of the deconstructive movements, even if they are ones that we would label as um, non-Christian, right? You know, like if you've grown up in the sorts of Christian institutions that I've grown up in, Marxism is like on par with Satanism, right? But there are certainly valid critiques. You know, Marx brought up a really, really interesting critique. He says, you know, people feel dissatisfied, and I'm paraphrasing here a bit, but people find a lack of meaning when they can't see themselves in their work. I think there's a lot of validity and truth to that. Um, Marx brought up good questions about our attitudes towards leisure and why we see a lot of times in Western civilization, we see leisure as a bad thing um, and we overwork ourselves. You know, there are valid critiques that Mark had, Marx had to bring. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you might be able to even see some of the work of Marxist critique, postmodern critique as helpful insofar as the critiques of Enlightenment thought, modernity, and Western thought, insofar as those critiques help to differentiate between what is John Locke or Rene Descartes and what is Jesus. <laughs> and that's a really, that's, that's tough for many of us. So there's a lot of people right now that are like, man, critical race theory is the Antichrist, Marxism. And what they're actually brushing up against <laughs> are the critiques of Enlightenment thought, the, the critiques of maybe uh, classical liberalism, which they have associated with as being Christian. And some of these critiques help us to see, well, you know what? I don't think John Locke had it all together. I'm a big fan of a lot of things that John Locke had to say. Um, Rene Descartes, you know, Descartes, Descartes was a... a brilliant philosopher. I don't throw everything out that Descartes um, believed and taught, but I also don't just accept it as the gospel. I don't accept Locke as the gospel. I don't accept enlightenment thought as purely the gospel. So some of these critiques are, can, be, can be helpful. But Christ, again, was also at work in the enlightenment too. So here's the hard part. What should be preserved? Do we throw out the emphasis of people like a Dawkins, for example, who would never word it like this, but, you know, as a Christian, I see much of what Dawkins had as a beef with religion as being religion is throwing out general revelation. These Christians out here and their crazy denial of science and the crazy denial of God's general revelation, of course, I'm paraphrasing, he would never call it God's general revelation, you just say science or these other terms. The, uh, Dawkins, in some ways, was right to bring out those critiques. I don't want to throw out ideas like general revelation. I don't want to throw out ideas about universal truth. So there are things that we want to still preserve even while saying, hey, some of these critiques are actually valid. Again, I've got my concerns with how the sledgehammer of these deconstructionist ideologies have been taken, especially to the very idea of universal truth, an idea that's much older than the Enlightenment in Western Civ. I'm not going to trace all of it back now, 
But even like the secular myth is built largely upon the split that people like Thomas Aquinas made between general revelation and special revelation, between divine law and natural law. The secular myth has been like, well, you know what? We can deduce things using our faculties of reason, and uh, we can come to discern natural law. And Aquinas would have said, yes, you can. That's awesome. But they just kind of cut out the whole divine law. They cut out uh, the other epistemological pathways of knowing truth. But I don't want to be like, hey, let's just throw out the idea that general revelation, that there is natural law or a created order to the universe. I don't want to throw that out. I'm very concerned about the impact of deconstructionist movements insofar as they critique the idea of universal truth. This, this belief that's growing in popularity that there are no meta-truths, that there's just community-held truths, that there's just local truths, truths, that there's your truth. Wow, I'm so glad you spoke your truth. Wow, well, good for you. I don't care. I mean, I care about your perspective, but we need to be people that care about the truth that transcends us and be people that push and push each other. Yes, push each other might be the right word to be open to the truth that transcends us, to call into question the things that we believe that are, are supposedly our truths that aren't in harmony with the truth. So again, for all of its flaws, secularity in principle held to the existence of truth. That was something good. I don't want to throw that out <laughs> in post-secularity. Sure, for, again, for this, in the secular myth, that truth is only knowable via empirical observation or maybe rational deduction. But to me, you know what? That's better than nothing. That has more degree of harmony with what I believe is the true story, to borrow Kenneth Tanner's phrase that I loved from our conversation. It has more in harmony with the true story of the world than this idea that, that there, there is no truth, that, the, that truths can be local, individual, and not have to have harmony with other claims of truth in reality. The goal of those well-intended secularists, and I, again, I'm not trying to make them into boogeymen. There were well-intended secularists that wanted to create neutral spaces where only those epistemologies for deducing what is true would be accepted. Those epistemologies like empirical, empiricism, rationalism, right? That, I think, there's some well-intended stuff there. Let's make a space where we can find common ground around these things, you know? And you could actually trace some of that back to Aquinas. When you're trying to build a, a, a civilization, <laughs> you're trying to make a society, um, you can force people to have particular religious beliefs. Locke, John Locke was certainly concerned about the efficacy of that, and I think he was right in that critique. Um, or what you can try to do is find common ground. And so I think there's well-intended secularists that were trying to say, hey, Let's find common ground. We have concerns about how religious differences manifest themselves in strife and war. I get that. But the deconstructionist critique of universal truth as simply a mask for colonial oppressive power undercuts 
even those paths, the paths that I do believe some secularists rightly clung to as appropriate paths for discerning the truth. Those ones are appropriate. I just think they were limited in their scope and range. The deconstructionist critique of universal truth as just being, well, there is no universal truth. It's simply a mask for colonial oppressive power, for capitalists, for, you know, white patriarchy, et cetera, et cetera. It undercuts those paths, and I'm concerned about that too. This is why people are beginning to feel as if we are living in an increasingly post-truth world. The effects of the post-truth world are showing up all around us. In part three of God's Wizards, Witches, and the End of Secularity, we'll talk about how we can see the end of secularity and the rise of the post-truth West, a civilization haunted by the prospects of magic but not sure what to do with God. We'll look for evidence of this in current events and in pop culture, those cultural stories that reveal what's going on in our collective cultural consciousness. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you're finding the content helpful. And if you are, I'd invite you to contribute on the Deep Talks Patreon community page, where you can not only support this podcast and ensure that I can keep doing it ad-free, but you can also get connected with other listeners from around the world in discussion forums, monthly group Zoom meetings, even there's opportunity at different contribution levels if you want. We can do monthly one-on-one meetings together where we can process whether it's things that I'm talking about in these podcasts or talking about with guests or just other questions about theology, philosophy, whatever else might be going on in your world. So check that out. There's a link available in the description below. If you have comments and feedback about today's episode, I love hearing all of them, even if they're questions or critiques, disagreements. The best place to do that is in this week's discussion forum. So for every episode we put out, I put out a discussion forum on Patreon that allows you to talk with me and others about the subject matter in today's episode. And that's the best place to do it. But you can also send me a message if you're a Patreon supporter. You can also reach out to me on Twitter or on Instagram. I always leave my Twitter handle or link to my Twitter account in the show notes in the description of this podcast as well. I want to give an extra special thanks to these particular people who are contributing in a way that's boy, just so extra helpful and special. They're keeping this podcast going and keeping it afloat. It's people like Clint, Jesse, Anders, BJ, Carolyn, Eli, Elise, Dr. Jim, John Michael, Johnny, Josie, JT, Justin, Lola, Luke H., Matthew, Michael Hawk, Michael Hernstein, Michael Peterson, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Peter, Rob, Sam and Nicole, Sam P., Sarah R., Sean C., Stephen M., Taylor S., Tim K. Thank you all for your generous support. Finally, my one last ask is if you're finding this podcast to be helpful, would you consider leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts, even if that's not the place you listen? It is the primary place people are still going to discover new podcasts. So if you leave a rating and review, it improves the algorithmic chances that someone else who may be interested in this sort of stuff might uncover and discover this podcast. So thanks for considering doing that as well. 
Again, reach out to me with your questions, comments, disagreements, any of it. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.